Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and this is the 100th episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a cooperative endeavor between SKIO and the local government commission. And with me again today as my co-host is Kate Meese, the executive director of the local government commission. Kate, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's hard to believe we're on episode 100. It's crazy to think that it's been almost two years since we started this. Yeah. And and looking back over the last few years, it's just as I was scrolling through all the episodes, we had so many amazing guests. It was just just been really a pleasure to talk to all these folks and lots of folks who are just doing such great things at the local and subnational and even national level working on issues of equity and sustainability. So it's been very encouraging. Today, we have an old friend back with us, not only to celebrate our 100th episode, but also to kick off a series of shows leading up to the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference 2018 which will be held in San Francisco from February 1st through the 3rd. But before we get to our guest, Kate, do you want to give folks a peek into the conference and tell them where they can go to get an early bird discount? Absolutely. So this will be our our 17th annual New Partners for Smart Growth. And we're really excited to be in San Francisco for the first time. I think it'll be a great place to highlight a number of issues around emerging technology and transportation and affordable housing and gentrification, just a lot of important topics that are are very timely. And I think we'll have a, a good audience out there and a lot of experts that we can bring together and learn from. So we're going to have eight tracks this year. We're going to have tracks that cover topics, including rural communities, sustainable water management, climate change, transportation, health, housing, smart growth, and inclusive prosperity of people in place. So a lot of important topics. You won't want to miss it. Our early bird registration ends November 29th, and you can register at newpartners.org. Fantastic. So as we were getting ready for today's show, our, our guest today was our guest back on the very first show. And it like you said earlier, Kate, it's hard to believe that that was actually two years ago. I thought it, it seems like it was much more recent that we, that we talked to Matthew, but do you want to introduce our guest? I would love to. So with us, we have Matt Dalby, the Director of the Office of Sustainable Communities, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency at the EPA. So Matt, thanks so much for, for joining us and for coming back two years later almost to have our 100th episode and, and to check back in. We're really hoping to, to think through with you and reflect back on, on the last two years. So in our last podcast, you talked about how our economy has changed since the Great Recession, which was really a wake-up call about our over-reliance on development to drive local economies. So can you share with us what is EPA's Office of Sustainable Communities doing to support communities and developing economies that respond to the 21st century and still align with the environmental goals that EPA you know, is there to protect? Well, first off, thanks very much for having me on the show again. I, I can't believe that it has been, you know, 100 shows. I think back on that 
podcast from a couple years ago, and I've even listened to it a couple times and actually shared it with my kids. My kids are 18, 17, and 14, and I, I made them listen. And they're like, oh, dad, how could you make us do this? But it was an important thing for me to do a couple years ago, and I appreciate being back. You know, to answer your question, Kate, you know, I think we're continuing to do the work that we've always been doing, which is empowering local communities and states to help communities make better decisions on how they grow and develop. Our program has been around in one form or another for, for more than 20 years now. The focus of our work has been helping communities identify and knock down barriers to development that's good for economies, good for the environment, good for local communities, and good for public health. So we're continuing to do that, and hopefully we are going to continue to do that uh, well into the future. Matt, one of the issues that really surfaced and got a lot of visibility during the campaign was, you know, really the the disenfranchisement of rural communities and the the frustration with, with some of the folks living in rural communities feeling like they aren't getting the support they needed. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, have we been sensitive enough to the unique needs of rural America? And what is the Office of Sustainable Communities doing to, to really address that population of America? I, I feel like if, if we go back to the point that you and I, Kate, spoke about and you just brought up now, and that is the Great Recession and the change in the economy that we're all still working on and struggling with. I mean, I think that r- rural communities across America have been places where that economic downturn and, and, and frankly, you know, structural change has been one of, it's been a bit one of the bigger challenges for rural communities and 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 that's kind of in part because i think the the economic shift uh, in a community in communities where there's often been you know one or two big industries overcoming that economic shift has been more difficult than in some you know larger metro areas where you know the change either happened more incrementally or just because of the scale uh, addressing the economic change has you know happened in sort of a different pattern or 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 on a different timeline if you look back at us history you know there's been a sort of a migration of folks out of rural, out of smaller towns. You know, that's been going on for 100 years or, or more. And I think one of the things we finally recognize over the last 10 or 20 years is that if we want to begin to address the environmental challenges, the economic challenges, then we really need to empower local communities, whether it's entrepreneurs or local electeds and decision makers or planning staff or neighborhood uh, associations or just folks who live in rural communities, empower them to make decisions on what their future, what their future can be. And I think that's that, that's what we've been struggling with. One other point. And I think this builds on a point that I was trying to make a, a year and a half ago. Except for the most part, we have a lot of public policy, whether it's at the federal level, the state level, um, and and even at the local level. That's that's set up to support the reimagining, the reinvention of economies in in bigger places. We don't have a lot of policies based that help communities reimagine what they could be, especially smaller communities. Reimagine what they could be, and then make catalytic public investments that support those visions. The work that we are trying to do in the Office of Sustainable Communities in our programs that we've been able to build up and continue to to use, like Local Food, Local Places program or our Cool and Connected program, or one that we just launched 
this year, Healthy Places for Healthy People, those are programs that are all set up to empower small communities, rural communities to take best advantage of public investments that are being made there anyway so that they can catalyze private sector investments, grow economies, reuse existing properties or vacant properties, reuse existing buildings, get main streets up and going again, and get folks back to work while at the same time improving public health outcomes and environmental outcomes. That's great, Matt. I think it's going to be increasingly important. I mean, certainly there's the disruptive force of losing major industries around the recession or with evolving economies. But I think we're going to see more and more of that related related to a number of disruptive forces that really picked up in the last year and a half, two years since we talked. Um, Definitely, we've seen increase in extreme weather events such as hurricanes, wildfires, firestorms here in, in California and in the West. And we've also seen a rapid advancement in technology. So as we think about automated vehicles and increasing automation and online retail, that's really going to change the economy again in these communities. So how how can communities best position themselves in the midst of these disruptive forces? Is this a similar strategy as you were just mentioning, or is there a, a new level of economic development and reinvention that needs to happen given the rapid scale of the rapid pace of change and the rapid scale or the the large scale change as well. First off, I think the the sort of the universal idea is that communities across the country, whether they're urban or suburban or rural, need to recognize that they are empowered to grow in ways that can help them either adapt or become more resilient to some of the some of the changes that are going on, whether they're sort of related to increased storms and changing weather events or or the changing economy. I think for the most part, our communities across the country that are going through these changes, you know, have, whether it's, they have infrastructure that generations before all of us made investments in, whether they are roads or sewers or buildings or folks who have been trained for jobs and things like that. And I think it's incumbent on the public sector to sort of empower those communities to make decisions on how to reinvent themselves going forward. So there will often be barriers to reinventing in a way that, and and growing in a way that will become more resilient. And I think public sector actors like ourselves are trying to identify tools that communities can use to overcome those barriers. So for instance, one of the documents that our office released earlier this year is a document that we'd worked on for a number of years, but it's called Smart Growth Fixes for Climate Adaptation and Resilience. And it's sort of a checklist and set of tools that communities can look at and then delve into their own zoning codes, their own comprehensive plans, the relationship between their local public policies and state policies and federal policies, and look for ways to change those those policies so that they can grow in the future in ways that allows them to be more resilient to the changing weather events, et cetera. We, uh, you know, going back to some of the the programs I described just a couple minutes ago, like our local food, local places program, that's a program that helps communities sort of incrementally reinvent their economies when there have been big upheavals. And the Local Food, Local Places program is set up to support communities growing their local and regional food economies and and, and working to make sure that that economic growth goes 
onto main streets, into places where infrastructure investments have been made in the past. And we just published a toolkit. It's called the Local Food, Local Places Toolkit, a guide to help communities revitalizing using local food systems. So those two new toolkits are, are, are available for communities to, to use, try out the ideas there, and help them either reinvent themselves or in the case of these, you know, extreme weather events, grow in ways that will allow them to, over time, not have to constantly clean up and rebuild themselves after after these events. And both of those are available on our website, which is www.epa.gov slash That's great. Can you, you mentioned the Cool and Connected program as well. Could you share a few words about that program? Sure. The Cool and Connected program is a program that we have done in partnership with a number of other agencies, including the Department of Agriculture, the Appalachian Regional Commission, and even the Department of Transportation. It's based on this idea. The federal government, primarily through the Department of Agriculture, has been making long-term investments in broadband in rural communities. Broadband investment is basically an infrastructure investment. And an infrastructure investment is meant to be an investment that catalyzes and spurs on economic development. In rural communities where there has been disinvestment over time, there are often main streets, old buildings on main streets in the core of the towns that are prime opportunities for economic redevelopment. So Cool and Connected allows us to go to communities that invite us in there and help them run a planning process so that when the public investment of broadband is brought in, that community is set up to spur on local businesses, entrepreneurs, and other development and revitalization in the existing towns. And we've been in almost 20 communities over the last year plus, all communities that have asked us to come there. And the the bottom line with a program like that is we all know in these tight budgetary times, public investments need to be paired with private sector investments. There's not enough money for the public sector to do it all on its own, nor should the public sector be required or made to do revitalization all on uh, by itself. When these investments are made in accordance with a plan and with support of local communities, it's possible to get better environmental outcomes, better economic outcomes, better community outcomes. And that's what Cool and Connected does. It sets up a planning process that allows communities to make the most efficient and best use of the public sector investments that are coming in. That's great, Matt. Broadband is certainly a critical backbone infrastructure for communities. In fact, we've had a couple of podcasts on the topic. So speaking of catalytic public investments, I know that the US EPA has a draft four-year strategic plan out. Can you highlight for us what is included in that plan and how communities can best position themselves for infrastructure and for other investments? Last month, the Environmental Protection Agency put up a draft strategic plan out for public comment. And there are a couple of points to highlight. One is that the agency really wants to build up its 
collaborative work with states under the idea of cooperative federalism. And, you know, we all know from our sort of our, our whether we're lawyers or just dabbled in some of the legal work that, you know, local governments are creatures of the state. So we'll be working with states and communities to help achieve sort of the environmental and public health outcomes that we are all working towards. We at EPA in the strategic plan are talking about the importance of growing economies and revitalizing communities as a way to protect human health and the environment. And we know that communities that have economic growth and economic opportunity have a better chance of being empowered to protect the environment, you know, from ensuring clean air, clean water, and clean land for all community members. We in the agency are working to make sure that the investments that we make in water systems and land cleanups and uh, in air quality can be used to leverage other investments that uh, will continue to help improve environmental outcomes, but also spur on economic growth in communities where we've already invested in infrastructure, where we already have roads and sewers and, and old buildings that are just waiting to help be part of reviving economies, especially in places that have been in economic distress over time. Great. Thank you. So yeah, definitely look for for the strategic plan on US EPA's website and there are other agencies that have their strategic plans out as well, including DOT. So definitely keep an eye out for for those and and weigh in and familiarize yourself with those. Uh, Matt, you've been a long-term partner of the conference we mentioned, the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference. This series, this podcast is going to be kicking off a whole series that will lead up to the conference in February. And the goal of the conference has been to equip local leaders to realize their vision for more livable communities. So it's really in line with what you're talking about of empowering local communities to to have a progressive vision of, of their community and to be able to have something that they can strive for together. So what message would you leave with our listeners and with conference attendees about the biggest opportunity or most promising development on the horizon for building smarter, healthier, and more prosperous communities? That's a great question. Let me let me maybe work my way towards the answer. I've had some of the most compelling sort of innovative conversations with folks who are in the community development, smart growth, sustainable communities, revitalization field over the probably the last the 13 smart, new partners for smart growth conferences that I've attended. So I think first off, you know, I will say that no doubt ideas and innovations that we will all be practicing four or five years from now will be topics of conversation in February in San Francisco. I'm confident of that. One of the places that I feel like we all should be considering moving into is conversation around how do we empower community members and stakeholders in communities where there has been disinvestment and economic decline? How do we empower those community members to partake in the wealth building that happens when revitalization comes along? And by that, I mean, one of the topics that has come up in a number of places, particularly in metropolitan areas, has been, you know, when revitalization comes along. But when revitalization happens, there is often a, there's often some pressure in and around sort of gentrification and there's wealth building that goes on. But how do we tap into, 
new innovative financing mechanisms that allows folks who have been in communities during the time when there has been the economic decline and the disinvestment. How do folks who are there now partake in the reinvestment, the revitalization, and the wealth building that goes goes along with those two things? And so earlier uh, this fall, folks from my staff were able to attend the Opportunity Funders Network meeting, which is a collaboration of community development finance uh, institutions. How can we get CDFIs more involved in the revitalization of communities where, you know, up until now, you know, one of the things we might have also been talking about would have been when revitalization comes along, so does gentrification. Can CDFIs play a role there? How do we begin to have conversations with bigger banks under the Community Reinvestment Act sort of policies that are in place to ensure that investments are are made in ways that 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 support not just communities, but community members. And I'm sure that these conversations have been going on in many different places, but I hope that they continue and grow at the new Partners for Smart Growth conference. I mean, I feel like we've had bankers and we've had representatives from banks at the conference before, but I think that's a place for us to expand the conversation. And then one last place, and this has been something that I've been pushing on the staff in OSC to begin to work on. You know, we hear a lot about how technology around that allows folks to do crowdsourcing for whether it's information or for projects like GoFundMe and things like that. Are there ways to do sort of crowdsourcing for real estate development projects in economically distressed communities where the potential for wealth building is quite strong and you know, I, you know I, I hope that we can begin to have those conversations as well, because I think that's one thing that we should be talking about in smart growths, in sustainable communities, in community revitalization circles for years to come. Great. Thanks, Matt. We're definitely committed as the conference leaders to furthering those conversations about innovative partnerships and innovative financing models. So unfortunately, that is the end of our time together. Thank you so much for joining us again, Matt, and we will definitely have to have you back on our 200th episode. Well, I look forward to that. Uh, my, my kids will probably be much older then, so they might be totally not interested by that point. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that's not the case. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate you all. This was great. Kate, thanks for a great interview. Glad to be a part of it. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.